For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. John chapter 3, verse 16. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Before I actually get into the sermon, if you're wondering why in the gospel lesson it said you must be born from above, and you thought, wait, I thought it was born again, it's because one of the uh, few pitfalls of the Greek language is there's only one word for both above and again. And so you could translate it either way. And so most historic translations say born again, but this particular translation says born above, just in case that was a curiosity. I'd like to... um, put before you this morning John 3.16, which is, um, of course, a verse we hear every Sunday, right, in the comfortable words. Um, If a Christian has one verse memorized from the Bible, it's probably this one. I hope some of you have it memorized. And if you had to pick only one, what a great one to memorize. Uh, I think it was John Chrysostom who called John 3.16 the Bible within the Bible, right? It's sort of the, the pure distillation of the entire message into a single sentence. But have we actually understood even its meaning? If you're like me, I think uh, a number of years ago, I sort of unconsciously took this verse and thought, oh, this is a great verse like for evangelism or something. Um, But maybe don't think of it as one of the verses that I need to continually kind of sit at the feet of and and receive from. But as a very wise biblical scholar once said, No Christian can presume to have already heard the gospel. I love that. It's a message that we stand in continual need of rehearing and relearning from. So I want to unpack John 3.16 a bit this morning. God so loved the world. I love that this lesson is tied in with uh, Genesis 12 and the calling of Abraham because it answers the question, which God, right? The God who first revealed himself to Abraham. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God that the Jewish people worshipped, the God who made the universe, that's the God who loved the world. And when we say God so loved the world, it's a bit ambiguous in English, isn't it? Whether Does that mean God loved the world in this way, or uh, God loved the world this much? Um, grammatically, it's in this way. I think in the, in the original, it's God loved the world in this way that he gave his only son. But it's not wrong to read it like... God loved the world so much because God, we know from the Bible, is love. And because God is infinite, that means his love is enormous. It's not, he's not sort of a stern judge with this little bit of a loving side, right? He is love. God is love. His love is beyond measure. We will, in fact, spend an eternity, God willing, Uh, enjoying and contemplating this love, and we'll never get to the bottom of it. It's larger than anything that we'll ever be able to contain. God so loved the world. And this is a, you know, because this is such a familiar verse, we think this is sort of like a a general religious truism. It is not. This is a uniquely Christian truth. Um, Every other man-made religion before Christianity, so what I mean to say is, Christianity is not, it's the only not man-made religion, right? All other religions are the inventions of a man. Christianity is the only one where God came down and said, this is how it is, right? It's a God-made religion. Every other man-made religion prior to the coming of Christ 
when it told the story about how the world came into being, when we look at their sort of creation stories, that we have, we have these ancient texts from Babylon and Assyria and in, in all these languages that people haven't spoken for thousands of years, written in, with chisels and Ugaritic and all this stuff. When you look at all these st- stories, and even the Greek mythologies, um, how the world came into being was either the creation of some wicked god who hated it, actually, or it was like this accidental byproduct of a clash between the good and the bad gods. Right? That's the best that mankind could come up with. That, that creation was at best like an accident, or at worst it was sort of the plaything of one of the bad gods. Right? Sure. Um, in no religion did the god who made the world love the world. Right? What we take for granted was a complete epiphany. Um, it, it was initially sort of presented to the mind of the Jewish people through the, through the Old Testament, but it only in, with this coming of, with this teaching of Jesus do we see God, the God who made the world loves the world. And even though ever since Christ revealed this, you'd think that other religions would then kind of take this and run with it too. It's almost like too marvelous a truth for non-Christians to even get their heads around. So when people invent religions after, and Islam is the great example of this, the, the God that Muslims believe in doesn't love the world, right? It was, like, it was like they actually cut that bit out. Even though Christianity existed for 600 years and, and Muhammad and his, well, his followers are kind of inventing this religion, they don't put in the God loved the world bit. It's like too big a thing. Buddhists do not believe God loves the world. They don't even believe there is a God properly to, who could love the world. And deists like um, Thomas Jefferson, he also didn't believe that God loved the world. Not, not with a personal love. It's like, it's this truth that's like too, too big a thing. Poor Jeffrey's kids in there. Um, <laughs> the, um, it's too big a thing, right? So even man, it's like they won't even touch it. It's too high a thing to bring down even. So this is a uniquely Christian truth. Only the Christian church is the only entity on earth which proclaims God so loves the world. He loves not in a general, vague sort of way, but with an incredibly specific and intense love, remember he loves in this way, the verse goes on to say, that he gave his only son. That's the measure of God's love. Meaning that God the Father was willing and did send God the Son, which in a way is sending himself because he's God and also not himself because he's the Son. That's here we are in the mystery of the Trinity that we'll never fully comprehend. But he's simultaneously sending himself and asking someone else to go, his own beloved Son. The son who had existed as long as God the Father had existed. Right? They, they, they've always existed together. Co-eternal, co-equal, we call Jesus. And prior to the incarnation, he had, this God the Son had never suffered change or felt pain or known weakness. Right? He was immutable God. But when he sent and he voluntarily goes, voluntarily comes into the world, into the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary, That is when he's first given to the world, the incarnation. We recently celebrated it at Christmas. But then he's given, and I think this is the full meaning of John 3.16. He's given for the world on the cross. Did you catch that verse where Jesus compares himself to the serpent that Moses held up? Do you remember that Bible story that the Israelites in the wilderness getting bitten by snakes and they're dying from it? And so um, God commands Moses to make a bronze serpent and put it on a staff, a, a, a wooden beam, catch the parallel, and to hold it up, and anyone who looked at that would be healed. 
Right? It was a thing that got lifted up on a, on, a, on a piece of wood, and it was a symbol of the wicked thing, right? A serpent is a bad thing. And yet it was a picture of the serpent. He who became sin, so he who knew no sin became sin for our sake. He got lifted up to be beheld by us. He's given for the world when he submits to death on a cross. Suffering, of course, the penalty for sin in our place. Right? He is the substitutionary sacrifice. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So if we ever, I think it's an answer we often need to come back to if we ask, does God love us? Right? Because in the midst of particular trials, it sometimes doesn't feel like it. That's why a cross is always central in a traditional church. Say, this is the answer to that question. Right? Yes, he does love us. And the cross is, it's too big a thing to get our heads around without an analogy. And yet then every analogy does a disservice because it's too small, right? So that's kind of the inherent problem of analogies when speaking about God. But I want to offer an analogy to just to try and show one aspect, which is the difference of scale between the one who loves us uh, and us who are beloved. Um, I want you to imagine that you have a pet hamster. How many of you have had a pet hamster at some point in real life? Um, yeah, pet hamster, Scott. Nice. Um, pretty recently? Just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, imagine one day that your hamster turns on you and bites you. In fact, it becomes chronically aggressive. It's biting and scratching and wounding all the other pets and your kids and yourself. What do you do with that hamster? You set out in the woods, if you're kind. Um, or there's other ways. But you would definitely get rid of Hammy one way or another. I may or may not be speaking from experience. Um, trace this terrible analogy uh, onto God. He doesn't get rid of the hamster. He volunteers his own son to become a hamster, to suffer miserably at the hands of other hamsters, to atone for the wicked hamster. That would be an insane amount of love for hamsters, right? I mean, could you imagine giving up your own human child to do, do that? To redeem a hamster? And yet I, I assure you the gap between God and us is much larger than between us and a hamster. And yet that's exactly the descent and the humiliation that God was willing to suffer to rescue us who are frankly pathetic creatures in his sight. Pitiable. Tiny. And yet he loved us so much he wouldn't just put us back out in the woods. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He gave us, of course, the, the raw gift of the cross. But he also gave us the means of laying hold of it, which is also essential, right? Every, if you, a power outlet's no good if you don't have a plug to connect to it. An engine's no good if you don't have a drive shaft to connect it to the wheels. We needed a way to receive the gift that he gave for the world, which he also supplies here in the verse. That whoever believes in him. So what do we do about this cross? Believe in it. Right? as a matter of fact, and then as a matter of trust. Whoever has faith in Jesus, whoever trusts in Jesus, that's who receives, who receives the gift that was given by the Father, the gift of the incarnation and the cross. Um, this is, of course, the great theme of Romans chapters 3 and 4 that we've heard. That the receiving of the gift, the thing that receives is faith, 
And the name for what that transaction that happens when you receive is called justification, right? Being accounted righteous, receiving the righteousness of Christ only for his merits and receiving it through, through faith. You could say that Paul, inspired by the Spirit, is just unpacking John 3.16. Right? Whoever believes in him will have eternal life. How does that work, right? All of theology is just actually unpacking that simple sentence. By believing in Jesus, looking to him for righteousness and not to our own works. That's the great sort of counterpoint of Romans 3 and 4 is that part of trusting in him means not trusting in anything that you have accomplished, but always returning your gaze, not sort of to your own life, but again, to Christ on the cross. In looking at him and trusting him, we are counted as righteous, just like Abraham. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. If it wasn't for Christ, we would go the way of a hamster in the woods. Right? A swift death and then decay. Of course, actually, it's worse than that, because not after bodily decay. Um, Christ calls eternity a sort of living death. He calls it the outer darkness. Right? Eternal, unending decay and misery. But by believing in Jesus, of course, we are spared that very real fate uh, and offered the exact opposite, right? Not just sort of come into the demilitarized zone, but move from total darkness and perishing into eternal life, life that has already begun, right? It, it's a pain to me when, um, uh, actually, you know, I saw it even on the Jim Bob sign just over here, it says, Heaven, the gift of God, Romans 6. But actually, Romans 6 says eternal life is the gift of God. And there is a difference, right? Because eternal life has already begun. That you are, or now, whatever your age is now, that's the number of years you are into your eternal life. I should say, it's not coterminous with your birthday, actually. Whatever, um, however many years you've walked with Christ from the day of your baptism, that is the time, right? the beginning of your eternal life. Stepping into that life in the first place, receiving Christ by faith, well, that's what the theologians call justification. <coughs> Growing in that life, the way a kid grows, that's called sanctification. And then attaining full maturity, which the, um, the geneticists sometimes change, it's around 27, I think, is sort of when you're genetically fully mature, um, probably not mentally fully mature yet, but <laughs> at least in my life. But genetically, apparently, that was full maturity. Um, and then remaining at full maturity forever, that's glorification. Right? Getting to enjoy, in the same way we enjoy health while it's there, um, getting to enjoy full growth forever. And all of those things, they all trace back to the single source, which is the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness that justifies, the righteousness that sanctifies, and the righteousness that glorifies. All of which we receive by faith, Faith in the one he's given, given because he loves us. Right? Not just loved past tense, but loves present tense. It's one of the great epiphanies of the Christian life, and I hope most of you have had it, but maybe some of you haven't. To actually know that, and it's sort of in your real being, that God actually does love you. Right? That you're not just some sort of anonymous person in the mass of the church. He actually has particular love for each of you. For me, the epiphany happened when I actually heard a lesser statement, which kind of drove it home. I was told once that, um, that God liked me, and it just melted me to the floor. I think I cried for about six hours after that. <laughs> and even though like is less than love, it's like, again, love is such a big word. That just to bring it down a notch, that God 
likes you, right? He wouldn't have come and died for you if he didn't like you, right? He wouldn't be sort of actively wooing you by his Holy Spirit and drawing you into his own life if he wasn't interested in you, particularly you, right? He wouldn't have knit you together in your mother's womb exactly who you are if he didn't, wasn't interested in who you are. He loves us in the present tense with an undying love. That's what's wonderful about the cross is it doesn't end with the cross, of course. It's the precursor to the resurrection. That he showed his love on the cross, but that love continues in his undying life, which he shares with us. Amen.